From CPR News, this is a Colorado Matters special. People drove across town so Terry Liker would bag their groceries. She protected produce and eggs and other groceries that needed to be perhaps even bagged separately. Liker, a decorated Special Olympian, was killed a year ago in a mass shooting at the Table Mesa King Supers in Boulder. So was aviation buff Denny Stong. Today, a victim advocate who represents two of the 10 families joins us to remember. He's part of a powerful new photography exhibition featuring portraits of Boulderites touched by the tragedy, like Jen Douglas, who was at the store that day. I was there to get my first dose of the Moderna vaccine. She huddled with a store employee during the shooting. In the years since, she's taken time off school to care for herself. A Boulder Strong special. Your membership does more than fund the news and music you rely on. It helps build a statewide community through shared experiences. Your gift means culture can be explored. It means stories can be told from the Western Slope, the Eastern Plains, and from up and down the Front Range. CPR can serve your community and other communities across Colorado because of your support. Thank you. Not a member yet? Join now at CPR.org. This is a special Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The voices you're about to hear are sometimes trembling, sometimes resolute, revealing the weight of the tragedy that struck Boulder a year ago. College student Jennifer Douglas witnessed the beginnings of the mass shooting, which killed 10 people at the Table Mesa King Supers. Victim advocate Craig Christopher continues to work with two families who lost loved ones on March 22, 2021. And photojournalist Ross Taylor took portraits of Douglas, Christopher, and dozens of other people connected to the shootings for an exhibition created to reflect the community's pain and its healing. We met all three at the Museum of Boulder, and we'll start with Jen Douglas. What were you in this store to do? I was there to get my first dose of the Moderna vaccine. That would otherwise be at least it was for me, a happy day, a sign that maybe the pandemic was coming to a close. Yeah, I was uh, very much looking forward to getting it. Uh, My family was planning a vacation. I had spent a couple hours, a couple nights before, searching for an open slot, and I had finally gotten one. I'm like, yes, I'm finally going to get vaccinated. This is going to be great. You walked in, and what? I walked in, I got it done. They asked me to wait those 15 minutes. uh, See if you had any side effects. Yeah, and I bought a couple things and I was gonna head to work afterwards. I worked at a a tutoring center at the time. It was kind of across Boulder. Um, So I had ordered an Uber driver. It was taking him about 10 minutes to arrive. So I decided, eh, I'll wait outside. And what was the first sign to you that something was awry? There was a large uh, bang or a pop, kind of like a big piece of sheet metal just falling. And, and you uh, heard this as you were waiting outside? As, as we were waiting outside, yeah. Me and this employee who just came out on her break. And we kind of looked at each other. And we're like, well, that's kind of weird. Um, we're like, maybe part of a car just fell off. And then we heard more. They kind of felt like, kind of like the earth was trembling underneath you. It just, it felt so visceral that we're like, oh, this is not right. And then we saw someone running. 
away in the parking lot. Running out of this store? No, he was uh, in the parking lot, unfortunately. And uh, he was running, and that's when we were like, we, we knew this was real. Um, so we kind of just like hugged each other and pushed up against the wall, and we we're like, please don't see us, please don't see us. And that's unfortunately when the victim fell in the parking lot. I personally, The man you'd seen running. Yes, I personally wasn't really watching that part. I was kind of hiding uh, my face in this employee's arm. But the suspect kind of um, ran past and into the store, completely bypassing us. He was probably at least 20 feet away. So if he did turn around, he would have seen us. He ran into the store. The employee looked at me. She said, we have to run. So we got up and ran around the store. And we um, saw other people coming out the back. And we ran all the way kind of to the Sweet Cow ice cream parlor. This is a fairly big shopping plaza. And so Mm -hmm. behind the store, there's more services. But your idea was get out of the parking lot, get away from the store. Mm -hmm. And this insta-bond that you had with a store clerk stands out to me. You want to say a few words about that? I didn't even know her. She was just a stranger to me. We were just like kind of hanging out at the front of the King Supers, kind of like, you know, if you see just a a stranger kind of standing next to you at a bus stop, you're just kind of standing there a little awkwardly. But that instant we knew something was wrong, it's like we were holding each other like we've known each other our whole lives. Do you know her name? Yes, I do. Um, And you don't have to share that here, but have you kept in touch? I found her on Facebook a couple days later. Uh, she had done an interview with kind of a, a news outlet, and um, they said her full name. So I found her on Facebook. I messaged her. I'm like, hey, I'm the person uh, that was with you. I wanted to say, you know, thank you just for being there. And she kind of shared the same sentiment. And our messages back and forth were just, like, full of gratitude and, like, unfortunate as it was. I'm like, I'm glad you were there. Like, you were just kind of my anchor, my rock in that situation. And both of us, we were like, you know, We didn't really feel like we had done anything, but to each other, we were just just a great support for each other, just being there. Because I think if she wasn't there, I don't think I would have been able to move, you know. Mm. Truly the idea of petrified with terror, Mm -hmm. do you think that's true? Paralyzed, maybe? Mm -hmm. Paralyzed with fear. It's more like your brain's like, what do I do in this situation? Because, you know, you're never truly prepared for something like this. Did you get the Uber ride? Did you go to work? I did get the Uber ride. While we were running around the back, I had remembered, oh my gosh, there's an Uber driver coming right towards the store. So I had texted him. I'm like, don't come. There's, <sighs> there's been a shooting. And um, my location was still on, so he could see where I was going. And he had found me in front of the ice cream parlor. He didn't drive away. He didn't cancel the ride. He found me and took me home. I didn't go into work that day, though. But to have the presence of mind to think of the Uber driver and that he was coming into a potentially deadly situation and to think to try to deter him, it sounds like that's what was going on for you. Yeah. I just wanted, That's remarkable, Jen. Yeah, I just wanted people to get away, honestly. So you went home. Mm-hmm. Did home feel safe? Yes, it did. My roommate was at home at the time, so I walked in, and she knew I was going to work. Um, She was like, oh, hey, you're early, and I didn't respond, and she immediately knew something was wrong. So she came to the front door, and I think everything was, like, finally settling in for me, and I just cried into her shoulder for, like, five minutes. 
As I hear you tell your story, I wonder how often you've thought of what if the appointment for that COVID vaccine had been five minutes later, 10 minutes later, you really are forced to reckon with how close one can come to peril. Mm-hmm. Is that a thought that's gone through your mind? More often than not. There are several times where, you know, scenarios of what if crosses my mind. Like you said, what if uh, the appointment was 10 minutes later? What if I had waited in the store for my Uber driver? What if, you know, what if I was near the front? What if I was checking out during this time? So many scenarios that lead to a very unfortunate outcome. But, you know, I've learned to tell myself that's not what happened. I'm safe now. I lived and I'm living to share my story now. That sounds like you might have been to therapy. Yes. <laughs> yes, I have a wonderful therapist. Did you have a therapist before this? I was actually going to her for general anxiety, and I had been to her in high school for general test anxiety. So she kind of knew me. She knew my history. So I was going to go back to her that actually that same week. Um, but my mom called her, telling her what happened. So she called me that night. She's like, hey, I heard what happened. Let's process this a little bit. The therapist called you the night of the shooting? Mm-hmm. She did. Jen, I'd like to talk about your portrait in this exhibition. You are warmly lit and you have a subtle smile. You're facing the camera. What do you feel when you look at this? Um, The biggest thing I remember when doing this portrait with Ross was trying to find a more powerful side to take it. So you're channeling something here. Yes, yes, definitely. And I, many people have told me, like, my smile is, like, I don't know, one of, my, one of my best features. And so I thought, you know, I am going to smile because I don't think being serious or frowning is really, you know, me. I don't like, you know, always being sad, always being upset or mad. I always try to be, you know, happy. I always try to be upbeat. For me, that's very powerful being, you know, like this upbeat person because I'm like, I am more than what happened to me. And that upbeat nature can't be taken away. There's something Mm -hmm. powerful about being able to say that. Yes. Yes. So why did you decide to sit for a portrait with Ross Taylor? I think, you know, all stories should be heard. But there are some people who can't bring themselves to tell their story. I I know a couple of people where they can't share their story because they're going to testify later. So they're told to like to keep silent. And so for me, it's important that I share my story, not only just for me, but for them. You're talking about a potential coming trial. Mm -hmm. Right now, the alleged shooter is being evaluated at a mental health facility. But that's a constraint you're saying on some folks. Mm -hmm. I don't usually ask about what my guests are wearing. (laughs) But if you could describe perhaps what you're wearing in this portrait and why. I am wearing one of my favorite flannels, a red flannel that's um, kind of longer to kind of make a cardigan. And that's the flannel I was wearing that day. And a flannel I couldn't bring myself to wear until uh, the portrait project came up. Um, It was hanging in your closet? It was in my roommate's closet. I had given it to her. I said, I don't want to see it. Didn't even want it in your space? I didn't want it in my space, no. And then when the time where the portrait project came along, I'm like, I want to wear this because I want to reclaim something that I lost with this. 
because there's a bad memory associated with it where I feel like if I wear it, something bad is going to happen. Hmm. So you, you donned it for the portrait. Mm-hmm. Is it back in rotation in your wardrobe or does it remain kind of set aside? It remains set aside. I don't think I'm ready to wear it in public yet. Mm. I wore it because I was in a very safe space to do it. I was at the resource center. I had a counselor with me. Ross was there too, which was really, really, really cool. For me, it was it was a way to reclaim like this article of clothing that kept like this dark cloud over me. I'm gonna wear it for this and show that like I am more than this. I am powerful and. Like I said, I'm smiling. You're smiling. <laughs> in the portrait. This is the resource center that was mounted after the shooting that continues to this day. Yes, yes. Jennifer Douglas is our guest. A year after she witnessed a gunman storm into the Table Mesa King Supers in Boulder, 10 people lost their lives. Many more lives were upended. A portrait of Douglas hangs at the Museum of Boulder, part of the show Boulder Strong, Still Strong. When we come back, how trauma manifests for Jennifer Douglas and how she copes with it. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. heard me say that many times over the past couple of years, but it's true. We're all broken in our own ways and we all need help from time to time. And when we can meet each other with empathy and compassion, well, that's where we can find hope. And that's exactly what Back From Broken is all about. And it's why we're coming back for a third season. So please make sure you're following Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. Back From Broken, with support from With The Label. A year ago, a popular grocery store nestled in a residential Boulder neighborhood became the site of a deadly mass shooting. Let's get back to my conversation with a survivor, CU student Jennifer Douglas. We spoke at the Museum of Boulder, where a portrait of her hangs as part of an exhibition called Boulder Strong, Still Strong. Before the break, she told me she has spent much of the last year in therapy. What's been your biggest breakthrough in that time, do you think? I don't think there was one aha moment. I think for me, my therapy was very gradual. (laughs) It started off as something, you know, of me thinking I'm not safe into maybe I'm safe, I don't know, into I am safe. And I've learned what my body does now and I learned how my brain is rewired and I know how to deal with it. What does it feel like in your body? Like at first, I kind of felt like a broken glass, you know, that someone had just picked up and thrown on the floor. And I was left picking up those pieces and trying to reassemble this glass. But in a way, I think someone had told me, it's like you're reassembling this glass into making something new and beautiful. And for me now, I feel very comfortable as I am now. I've very much accepted the new ways my brain works and the way my body reacts to things, whether I know it or not. So I've kind of learned to, you know, know the signs. Oh, this is an incoming of, let's say, a panic attack. Hmm. I know how to talk myself down from it. I know how to ground myself enough where I can go get help. 
So you have panic attacks after the shooting? Yes, I, I have. My first one was during the week of 4th of July. These were triggers I didn't even know were going to even show up for me. I was still kind of learning what I was comfortable with, you know, like stepping my foot out in public again and be like, okay, how comfortable do I feel like shopping at, you know, a department store? But Looking around you, wondering if there's something to be on alert for. Yeah, definitely. Like, I can't have my backs to doors now. I don't like being near entrances. But Fourth of July was kind of like this big revelation for me, at least in terms of I can't deal with things auditory because... Oh, the sound of fireworks. The sound of fireworks, yeah. It's a lot like, you know, like Army veterans. They can't stand the, the sounds of fireworks. And I had not even thought about fireworks being a potential trigger, but the first one went off and I just bolted out of bed and I'm like, what was that? And my my rational brain was saying, it's a firework. It's a firework. But my emotional brain was like, take me back through all the emotions I had felt that day. And I'm like, I can't deal with this anymore. Did you call your therapist? Uh, yes, uh-huh. I did. That did happen around like three o'clock in the morning. So the next day I'd called her. I'm like, I can't deal with fireworks. Um, so we were making a plan of like, okay, what are we going to do if another person sets it off? Um, what do you do? I always carry Bluetooth headphones with me at all times to block out noise. So I will put on like kind of a slower paced song. I will blow my eardrums out with that particular song because the tempo helps me breathe. A slower tempo helps me remind me like, okay, like in for four, out for four. Mm. So I kind of breathe to the music and then uh, I sleep with a white noise machine. It's like a sonic cocoon a bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've taken some time off school, right? You took a gap year. Yes. Talk to us about that. Is that related, do you think, to the shooting? Yes, it is. I went back to school. What are you um, studying? Elementary education. Yes. (laughs) Um, But I went back to school, and I realized I cannot do this. It was just too much. It was overwhelming. On one hand, I'm dealing with, you know, the after effects of this incident while I'm trying to keep face in front of my other classmates, in front of my professors, and, like, I'm okay when I'm really not, I decided that a year off would be greatly beneficial. And it truly has been. I've been able to, like, I got a job in the BVSD school district. Um, That's Boulder Valley School District. Yes, yeah. yes Boulder Valley School District. Uh-huh. Working with kiddos? Working with kiddos. And they're like my serotonin boost every day. <laughs> <laughs> they're little gremlins, but I love them. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, it just, you know, reinforces that this is what I want to do. But also, it gives me time to, like, take a step back and focus on my self-healing and my self-care. So it sounds like that took a little bit of convincing, a little bit of soul-searching. Yes, it it really did. And it helped because I had just visited the Boulder Resource Center at the time. So I was sitting down with a couple of other counselors, and I'm like, I don't know if I should take a gap year. And they're like, you should take a gap year. And I'm like, okay. I want to ask a question that it's a bit sensitive because I know that it's important for you to underscore that you're safe. At the same time, we know that events like this happen in our community. Mm. Colorado has had some infamous examples. Um, But have you spoken with your therapist or with your close friends and family about the reality that these things do occur 
and did occur in your own community? Mm-hmm. This is a tough one. I mean, I think every day I go outside, I always have a question of what if something happens? You know, like I'm at a school. What if something happens at my school? And I hate thinking that. And I hate that my brain does it now. But it's just something I unconsciously do. I can't tell myself, you know, oh, it'll never happen again in Boulder. You can't use it will never happen again for me because it has happened for me as low as the chance as it is. But what I do is I always have a plan. I always evaluate where I am, where are the exits, where's the best hiding spot. Okay, if I'm with, with my kids um, at the school, well, what do I do? Hmm. How do I get them together? How do I communicate to them that there's something wrong? And having that plan in my head is... It's a support. Mm, Empowering? It's empowering, It's interesting. I mean, I've taken active shooter trainings, and these Mm -hmm. are the very things they teach you to do. It strikes me that some of these skills will make you a better educator, as unfortunate as it is for me to say that. Yeah. Do you go to the grocery store at all? I do. Um, I've gotten a lot better at it. Uh, So going into any grocery stores took some retraining. Yes. I started kind of with off-brand stores from uh, King Supers. I started with like Sprouts or Old Market because they were still a grocery store, but they weren't King Supers. And for me, King Supers is still kind of hard to go into alone. I can do it, but I have to map out where I'm going to be beforehand, what I'm going to grab, how long I'm going to stay out in the front, in the um, checkout area, and then how fast I'm going to leave. So I, I mentally have to prepare myself for everything I have to go through. And if like one thing kind of like knocks off my schedule, or let's say someone's blowing up a balloon and it pops, then I'm like, nope, schedule's off, I'm going home. What do you think the day of the anniversary will be like for you? At first, I wanted to be a hermit and just stay inside and do nothing. But I get that. Yeah. <laughs> I really get that. But also, I was talking to a therapist, and they're like, you know, I think it's also good to reclaim that day. And where I am now, I'm like, yeah, I think so too. So I want to do something, whether that's, you know, I buy a calendar and just put a match to the March 22nd. Um, burning an burn effigy. Yes. Burning, a, a cleansing burn. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Or like even going out to dinner or just doing something, or even something as small as I'm going to buy myself a tub of ice cream, I'm going to sit down in front of the couch and watch a movie. Ice cream yes. seems like an <laughs> awfully good idea. Yes, I think so too. I'm grateful for your time. Thanks for sharing your story and your portrait with us. Well, thank you for having me. 22-year-old Jennifer Douglas, who was at the Table Mesa King Supers in Boulder when a gunman attacked. As we go to break, here's one of the songs she turns to when she needs some comfort. We'll be right back to remember two store employees who lost their lives a year ago. This is a special Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Public Radio is proud to sponsor TEDx Mile High, presenting Colorado's thinkers and doers sharing life-changing ideas on the theme, Ascend. 
Explore big ideas taking flight across science, technology, the arts, education, business, April 30th at the Newman Center for the Performing Arts at the University of Denver. Tickets available now at TEDxMileHigh.com. After a gunman killed 10 people at the Table Mesa King Supers in Boulder a year ago, people started to place flowers and cards and stuffed animals nearby. Some of those items are on display at the Museum of Boulder, alongside portraits of people who were pulled into the tragedy that day, including Craig Christopher, a victim advocate with the city of Boulder. Craig, I'm pleased to meet you, and your work is specifically with the families of two late King Supers employees, Terry Liker and Denny Stong. Will you tell us about Terry and Denny? Denny would have turned 21 on March 8th. Well, he had just celebrated his 20th birthday uh, at the time of the shooting. He was a young man um, full of energy, full of drive. He aspired to be a pilot, was taking pilot lessons. Um, He also flew uh, remote airplanes, and he was very good at it, uh, especially for such a young person. Hmm. When you uh, say he was very good at it, how do you know that? What's a sign of, of how good he was? I've spoken to his friends about his love of flying and, and also his parents. During the um, memorial service, there was a flyover for him in vintage airplanes. It was just um, such a tribute. I'll never forget the flyover. Um, we could hear the engines of the airplanes coming and the roar of them. They were very low um, and small airplanes, vintage planes. It was just one of those moments where it captured the essence of who he was and who he wanted to be. Hearing you talk, the, the loss of the potential is so painful in, in someone that young, you know? He had so much going for him. Um, and, and you're right. He aspired to do so many things. Um, he was also really good at what he did at the store. I've spoken to many people who knew him through their association in the store. He was a clerk at King Supers. Clerk, and he and he did a variety of things at the at the store, um, and he wasn't even scheduled to work that day. His schedule had changed, and he came in to see what uh, the change was, and was hanging out with some friends there when this occurred. And Terry Liker. Terry was 51 years old at the time of her death. Terry had worked at the uh, store for over 30 years. Worked in the front, by and large. One of my favorite stories about her is that I currently work for a company in Boulder um, called VM Mobility Services. And These are pro- rides for folks with disabilities. Yes. Yeah. By and large. Uh, we, we're more diverse than that, but in this uh, context, that's exactly right. And we have passengers who live in North Boulder who would book rides to go to the Table Mesa King Supers to shop for their groceries. On the other side of town. On the other side of town. And they did that because they wanted Terry to bag their groceries. So they would travel across town, do all their shopping, stand in the proper uh, line for her to bag their groceries. And what was notable for her was the way that she did them. She was very efficient. 
She protected produce and eggs and other types of groceries that uh, needed to be perhaps even bagged separately. She knew how to do that in such a way that uh, people left feeling like, okay, my eggs are going to be whole when I get home as well. My eggs will be whole. My bread won't be squished. (laughs) That's right. I know the thrill of unpacking groceries and knowing that's the case. Right. Was King Supers for her a career? King Supers was definitely a career. And she was involved in so many other things. She was involved in Special Olympics. I don't remember the number of medals, but if we all wore them, (laughs) we would— We'd be uh, sagging. We'd be sagging. Uh Um, She was also very attached to the University of Colorado, particularly their marching band. During the football season, uh, before a home game, there's typically a pep rally on the Pearl Street Mall, and the band is there. And she would show up 30 minutes before the band would, and she would check in with the band director. And she was just um, one of the unofficial cheerleaders, if Mm. you will. Uh, She lived and breathed CU football and athletics. Craig, your time as a victim advocate with the city of Boulder precedes the shooting, when did you get your first call from the department about what had happened? So I was at work on that afternoon. Your day job. My day job. Yeah. And it came over um, my news feed on my phone, felt the vibration and just happened to look down at it and saw that there was an active shooter at King Supers in Table Mesa. And I thought, oh my goodness. And so I tried to find what I could and wasn't finding much. But then I got another uh, news alert and decided to go home and get ready because I felt like I probably would get called. Once I got home, I called my supervisor at the police department and said, I'm available should you need me. Uh, Later on, I got a call asking me to go to the CU Events Center. Uh, This was just a matter of a few hours after the shooting. I walked in with a couple of other advocates into a room and I quickly surmised that the people in there were friends and loved ones of ultimately the real victims in the the shooting. This had become something of a staging area for family. Yes. Mm -hmm. They were there to receive updated information. All of them knew that their loved one had been in the store at that time. They had texted them, they had called them, they had tried to reach out to them, and they hadn't heard back. So they sat there holding their phones and holding on to hope that something would illuminate on their phone that would allow them to know that their loved one was safe. Did that happen for any of the people around you? It did not. It did not. So we listened to the police chief give updates. So there was a lot of angst in the room. There was a lot of sorrow. There was a lot of anger, uh, just not knowing what to do with all of those emotions. What is your role at a moment like that? We moved around the room, uh, introduced ourselves, shared our concern for them, assured them that we were going to be there at that time. And in the future for them, whatever they needed, we were there to help them. That you were in it for the long haul. We were in it for the long haul. Were Terry and Denny's family there at that point? Yes. Um, I met one of them that night, wasn't assigned to them or anything at that point. We were just trying to be there to reassure them that we will all get through this 
and I was there until the very last family member left. How late was that? I want to say it was around 10.30 or 11 at night. Um, and then the next morning, I got a phone call 30 minutes into work asking me to come to the police department. And I did. And at that time, <clears throat> I was asked to uh, represent and be an advocate for the family of Denny Stong and Terry Liker. That means from the event through to what? A potential trial and beyond? Yes, I've, I've been with them every step of the way. I've attended court hearings uh, with family members, sessions where we've had a phone call from the coroner's office where the coroner was able to describe exactly what happened. So I've been with families at the darkest of their moments. And you were at the funerals? Yes, I attended both of them. I also spoke at Terry's. Um, Relaying those stories you had heard about people coming across town to see her. Yes, um, because she was one of our passengers. At the transit service where you work. Correct. Um, there was that connection, and I was able to speak to many drivers about Terry and their experiences with her, and they shared so many wonderful stories, and I was able to put those together, talk about her um, and her life vis-a-vis -vis our company. Uh, we actually took her to work that morning. And the driver who uh, was assigned to her that morning and took her there uh, was, as you can imagine, uh, very impacted by that and remembers her so fondly in those last moments that he was with her on that, on that ride that day. She was a character <laughs> on the bus. She Like uh, what? Oh, one of my favorite stories is uh, actually one of my close colleagues was driving her one day and took a different route. And Terry kept saying, you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. And she knew the route. She knew the route. And they finally got there. And my colleague Elizabeth said to her, we're here. I want you to have a great day. And she said, thank you, wrong way, Elizabeth. <laughs> <laughs> She spoke her mind. She spoke, she spoke her, her mind. mind. Victim advocate Craig Christopher helping us remember Terry Liker and Denny Stong, two of the 10 people who lost their lives in the Boulder King Supers shooting a year ago. He'll be back with us after a break. How does he manage his own grief? And we'll look at his portrait. Plus, meet the photographer behind this show at the Museum of Boulder. But as we head to break, a little of the CU marching band that Terry Liker was so fond of. This is a special Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Vanessa Rivera, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. I knew that it was time, and so as soon as I got my new car, the next day, I went on CPR.org, and a lot of people were asking me, you know, how much money are you going to make out of it? I was like, actually, I'm not making any money. I'm donating my car to Colorado Public Radio. And it kind of felt like I was giving back and saying thank you for just listening. And so it was kind of like a paying it back, but also paying it forward at the same time. Learn how to donate your car at CPR.org. A special Colorado Matters today from Boulder, 
where a year ago a gunman killed 10 people at the Table Mesa King Supers. The community's struggle and its resilience are captured in a new show at the Museum of Boulder. It features portraits, photographs, of people who were affected by the tragedy, including Craig Christopher. He's a victim advocate representing the families of two murdered store employees, Terry Liker and Denny Stong. I wonder how you manage your own emotions, Craig. Who do you turn to as a victim advocate? I have family, I have friends, and I have other advocates. Um, There's a a small group of us, as you can imagine, who were assigned to these families, and we get together fairly often. And I remember the first time we were meeting, uh, the meeting was set for about an hour and a half, and I think we walked out of there three hours later. Mm, A lot of processing. A lot of processing. It's very cathartic. And I know that I can go to any one of them at any time, and they're going to be there for me, and vice versa. In the aftermath of the shootings, a chain-link fence went up around the King Supers, and that became a community memorial where people left flowers and gifts, placed pictures, wrote notes. I understand that became a very special place for you and your son, and indirectly for the families you've gotten to know through the process. What's the story? So I I wasn't able to go to that memorial fence for quite a few days. Um, Just logistically, schedule-wise? Just emotionally. Ah. Um, And just experiencing what the families had experienced and and myself as well. Too uh, visceral. Participating in some of those uh, conversations. Yes, too visceral. And then I felt like it was important as part of the healing process to go there. So I did, and I went by myself, and I walked it and came back a second time, and this time with my phone, and I took photographs of every piece of of memorabilia that I could find that had either Denny's name or Terry's name Mm. on it. You felt that you were a documenter of that, maybe? Yes. Then I shared that with my son, who was in town at the time, And he went there quite a few days in a row, and he also took pictures. And then we put them together, and I said, Nick, somehow I want to put these together and give them to the families. Make a a book, perhaps, or photo book. Yes. And so he knew how to do that. Oh, there is a photo book. You created one. I created two photo books. Um, They're just memories of what I saw there. And it reflects the, the love that people shared about Denny and Terry, as well as the other uh, victims that day. Uh, it talks about um, power. It talks about um, love, um, spirit, their spirits. Spirit never dies, bolder, strong. Yes. What does this say? Missing our community members, love to their families, friends, and to bolder. Right. There are complete letters that were there. Here's one from the Boulder Theater. Our hearts are with our community. Across the marquee. Across the marquee. Some of these signs, some of these articles of clothing are on the walls that surround us at the exhibition, which makes me wonder how this has affected the community. I mean, you certainly are a victim advocate for these two families, but you're also a member of the Boulder community. Yes, I've lived here since 1973. 
I almost feel like my roots are here. Retired educator, right? A retired educator, yes. I think I, I heard someone refer to this uh, this notion earlier. Um, I felt like we lived inside of a bubble. This was an idyllic place to live. People joke about that all the time, the Boulder bubble. Yes. And that day, that bubble was penetrated. Hmm. And uh, we experienced something that we've seen happen across the country. And it hurts. It still hurts to this day. As And it's very emotional for me at times. And as I've worked in the community and spoken to a lot of people about that day. It's a day that, much like I remember when President Kennedy was shot, I know exactly where I was. I know exactly what I was wearing. A defining memory. A defining memory and a defining moment. And for our community, we came together like I've never seen our community come together before. Uh, We've always been strong, but uh, we wanted to make sure that we, we showed strength that was way stronger than the evil that we saw that day and experienced that day. Isn't it okay sometimes not to be strong, though? In other words, Boulder, sometimes not strong is okay, Boulder? It is. I think it's okay to be vulnerable. I think we, when we are feeling not so strong is when we can also make ourselves available to new learning. And, and I've learned so much during my moments of... I wouldn't say weakness, they're just not as strong. And I've learned so much during those times, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. I don't intend to turn this to an interview by proxy, but can you speak to whether the families hope there is a trial? Do you hope there's a trial? I do hope that there's a trial. I think it's important uh, for all of us to process, and that the trial itself will help us to process this and to get some closure. I believe that the families absolutely want a trial, and they want it to be a fair trial, but they want a trial. Well, before we go, you showed us the photos in those photo books, but let's look at your photo, your portrait in this exhibition in Boulder. What do you see when you look at it? The first thing I see is that your outfit now is quite similar to your outfit the day (laughs) of the portrait. You're in a sweater with a smart dress collar. Thank you. Um, What I see there is someone who is deeply committed to the work that I do as an advocate. I'm deeply committed to whatever work that I do, but as an advocate, one of the things that um, drives me is I, I think back to Mr. Rogers. And when Mr. Rogers saw scary things, he would, and he would say something to his mother, his mother would say, look for the helpers. You'll always find helpers. And for me, being a helper is so important. It's in my DNA. It's who I am. And being an advocate for these families or as any other family that I've worked with is an honor, honestly. I meet people at some of their darkest moments when their lives have been turned upside down. And I reassure them that I'm going to be there for them And as long as I need to be there for them, uh, we'll help them with identification of resources that will help them. Could be identifying a mortuary, a funeral home, whatever the, the situation is. Why did you want to sit for the portrait? I thought about it. Um, when I first learned about it, at first I thought maybe not. 
And then I thought some more about it, and I thought I learned what Ross was doing with this exhibit and and his intent. And I thought these are really important people who were involved in a piece of Boulder's history that we'd like to forget, but it's still there. And for me to be associated with the amazing people who are shown around this room is indeed an honor. It's a testament to the community. It really is. Photographer Ross Taylor, what was going through your mind as Craig sat for this photograph? I think back to that moment, I think of uh, just a calming presence that uh, Craig has. You felt that? Oh, for sure. And it's very evident that it's a quality of his that I think is helpful for those in this situation. His eyes say that to me. There's a warmth in his eyes that you've captured. Is that something you tried to do? Is there a way to focus a camera to get eyes in particular? Or is that just the nature of his eyes? <laughs> There's certainly some techniques with uh, lighting and, and our approach that we want to make sure to I want to make sure people look good in the photograph, and I want people to feel authentic. And most importantly, I want people to feel confident and and calm as well, because I want them to feel safe. Safe. And let's spend a few more minutes with photographer Ross Taylor, who helped create this show at the Museum of Boulder, and whose theme is still strong. Our profound thanks to Craig Christopher, victim advocate, whose portrait is included. I asked Ross how the idea for this project came to him. Oh, I think the backdrop of this is I was a longtime photojournalist. And when the incident happened, I felt compelled to photograph the week after. But I felt like there was more to be done. And I have a unique position in that I am a professor at CU Boulder and have a best You teach photography. I teach photojournalism. That's correct. I have previous experience working with issues related to trauma and and have seen community come around and heal around in the wake of a documentary or documentary form. And I thought about the idea of doing a portrait series, that the work in the week after wasn't enough. And I felt like there needed to be a home and a purpose. And I approached the Museum of Boulder, which uh, was willing to partner with the idea. And that gave it a legitimacy and it gave it a sense of home and a sense of purpose. I think what I appreciate about what you said there is that a lot of journalism is about swooping in immediately after the fact, and then the satellite trucks pack up and go home. And it sounded like you wanted something that was longer lasting. That's exactly true. The the idea was to provide an archive of those who had an intersection with the event. And so- What are other examples, by the way? So look around and, and maybe point- to some other examples of community members who are a part of this? There's so many. When I think back to the experience, I think of the police chief uh, opening up and and allowing me to photograph in the police department. And uh, her openness to the experience paved the way for many of the first responders uh, that you see present here. So here's Brian Pleiter, Boulder police officer, who's holding a shield up, presumably to protect himself from bullets. That's correct. He was in the second wave of the responders who entered the building, and he and his partners received a fire from the suspect. And uh, he wanted to be posed with his shield because he he wants to be the person that protects uh, his fellow officers and other people in the community. Here's Jessica Adler. What did Jessica do? 
Jessica was on the primary channel for 911 when it happened. So she was on the lead channel of... Oh, a dispatcher. A dispatcher, but it was on the primary channel. There are multiple channels, and she was on the primary channel when it occurred. Who's Buck? Buck has four legs, not two. He's a, he's a dog that has a, works in a myriad of capacities uh, in comfort roles for those in our community and works directly with the district attorney's office, but serves in a, in a role of comfort for families as well as Boulder officials. The photos are stirring, but they're not maudlin. Does that make sense? There is a smile, for instance, on Jen's face, who we heard from earlier in the program. Does a smile have a place in this kind of photography? I think it depends on the person in the archive. And so there are those who were first responders. And many of those cases, we collaboratively decided that it wasn't a smile wouldn't reflect their position in the archive. But then there are other those that are working in areas of healing and reclamation of a space. And we thought that, and again, collaboratively, we thought it was a, a right way and an appropriate way and a respectful way to reflect them. Who's not represented here? We do not have photographs of people and families who were directly impacted and who were, who were killed. Um, but that was by design. We wanted to move carefully. And the beginning of the archive was to photograph uh, those who had some intersection and work outwardly in, uh, meaning those who had less of an impact. And over time, as we built the archive and the word got out, we began to move closer to the inner circle. The archive is still open, and I'm still open to photographing people. So the invitation is for the families of those who, who were killed, mm. and that has been relayed to some of them. And, and I, I can't speak to the extent, but the archive is still open, and I, I'm still going to be making photographs. So they have that ability to if they would like to. It's an offer, not an insistence. Right. When someone takes a photo of me, or, or several, I like to go through them and say yes to this one, no to that one. Did you give people who sat for these portraits veto power? For sure. Okay. All of these were a collaborative experience. Knowing that this may have some significant weight over the history of Boulder, I wanted to make sure that they had a, a voice and a say in how they would be represented. I know you're the professor, but what have you learned as part of this process? Where, where are you the student in this? I'm reminded of the power of documentary as a vehicle or a potential vehicle for healing. And that when we're seen and when we're heard, uh, it helps connect us. And, and my hope is that it'll make us be a little bit kinder to each other. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for sharing the photography with us. Thank you for being here. CU photojournalism professor Ross Taylor, who helped create Boulder Strong, Still Strong at the Museum of Boulder. It documents and archives the community's experience following the Table Mesa King Super shooting a year ago. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks first and foremost to our guests, Ross Taylor, Craig Christopher, and Jennifer Douglas. Today's show was produced by Michelle P. Fulcher and engineered by Shane Rumsey and Michael Hughes. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.